House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren. On the uh, co-host couch today, we've got Mr. Michael Hawley. Hello, how are you doing, Al? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. How's Buffalo? Uh, it's not too bad. Every, uh, you know, right here, we've got uh, uh, no snow yet, but that'll come probably next week. So we're looking good. Wow. You know, I can't believe it's <laughs> that time already. It's getting there. Holiday seasons are coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw you had the skulls out. You're getting ready for Halloween already. Oh, yeah. I go, I go a little crazy. But, uh, that's, that's part of it. Though. It's been getting in, it's the 90s and hundreds here back west, and uh, you're getting your skulls out. <laughs> I tell you. And of course, we've got Mr. Joe Goldberg. How you doing, Joe? I'm wide awake, Al. I'm here for you. And we're actually having a, we're actually, it's raining and, and thunderstorms in Chicago. It's actually refreshing. You hear the boom, boom, boom in the background. Yeah. It's, it's well, nice rain. Yeah. Wash all the dirt away. Yeah. I'll have to take a picture of it. <laughs> it's not like the only time you ever get rain lately yeah well you know it all comes together at the end you know you're well, like a water my tomatoes i'm from the midwest so you have to have your tomato plants so as long as i keep my tomatoes going that's fine yeah nothing else matters keep joe's tomatoes that's right yeah well we've got a great guest today uh all the way from across the pond they say so and he's got a new book out called ice islands so, Mr. Humphrey Hawksley, thanks for being here. Thank you, Alan, for, for asking me. And as, as, as uh, I think it was, uh, Michael said, I'm here for you. Uh, yeah, that was Joe. <laughs> that was Joe. But I'll take, I'll take his credit. Oh, Joe said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you see, Michael takes the credit for it, but will never be here for me. He's here for himself. <laughs> Just, my, again, narcissism. That's, yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, and Joseph, yeah, just just so you know, don't don't get carried away. Be careful with him; he's a little dangerous. Um, Humphrey, boy, you've had quite the career. I was going to say because you've been all over the place. BBC, you've got, I guess, podcast. You've got, you you got so much history. Um, Maybe tell the listeners a little bit about some of your exciting pastime. Well, I mean, at the moment, I'd, uh, I'd, I'm a foreign correspondent or a, a journalist uh, by trade, and I guess that's by DNA. And then from that, I became an author, um, firstly with the sort of nonfiction type of military political scenarios. And now I do um, nonfiction books, and uh, I have a sort of thriller series uh, based, uh, based with a character that's based on the U.S.-Russian border. Um, which nobody knows much about, nor did I until I went there. It must be four or five years ago now, um, when U.S.-Russian tensions were not quite as high as they are at the moment, but they were sort of creeping in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, you've always got Europe in the middle of these sort of ideological spats between superpowers, uh, and Europe can never sort itself out, but there is a border between these two countries. So I went there on an assignment for the BBC, and what I hadn't realized then um, is that I thought there was this big expanse of water of 50 or 100 miles across between Siberia and Alaska. But, it, but that's not the case. There were two islands that were barely two miles apart, and one was a Russian military base, or one is a Russian military base, and one is 
a, a, a native Alaskan indigenous island with 80 people on it. So I thought that I, that I went out there uh, to um, do a report for the BBC about what this actual border is between the superpowers. And you have to charter a helicopter to get there, which we did. Uh, and it was meant to be a sort of 24-hour turnaround. I thought that would be enough overnight, <clears throat> interview a few people and then out. And then the fog came down. So I was there for about 10 days. Uh, and 10 days on a, a no hotels, no roads, <laughs> nothing. I'm sure you had Netflix. And, <laughs> no and Netflix. Like <laughs> oh, my God. You are a civilization. <laughs> so, so I conjured up a story um, of, um, you know, what would happen if the Russians just came across and took the island. Uh, wow. And being a, a, being a sort of – and I thought, oh, that's quite a good idea for a thriller. But then, then of course, you know, you know, being a mystery person, you, you have to have a twist to it and ramp it up a bit. And I said, okay, well, let's, what happens if they actually take this island on the eve of a presidential transition? So you've got a, uh, two presidents who don't like each other particularly, so you've got that power vacuum of what to do if Russia seizes a bit of American land. And then I thought, well, who's the hero going to be? And, and I went through all those things about, you know, the special forces guy and the this and the that. And I thought, well, no. Don't be so stupid. You know, your heroes, because the people that live there, they're absolutely incredible. I mean, they, they live off their wits. They live in this hostile environment where the weather's changing every day. They get up every morning and they look at Russia, just like Sarah Palin said all those years ago. I was laughed at her. <laughs> I did that for <laughs> 10 days. Um, so I created uh, a character as an amalgam of the people that I was living amongst for, for those 10 days. Um, uh, as a character from the Alaska National Guard, who was then, so he had all the, the training that was necessary to write a thriller. And um, Ice Islands, that you kindly mentioned just then, is the, is the fourth in the series. The publisher liked it, I liked doing it, so we just keep writing them. Wow. Did you stay with Sarah Palin on that island? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I did. I was sort of fascinated because, you know, you guys are probably too young to remember this, but I remember Sarah Palin saying this and everybody ridiculing her and saying she doesn't know anything about Alaska or foreign policy. So I listened very carefully to the interviews that she'd done um, with, I think it was ABC, she did it. And she, all she said was that Americans can see Russia from their backyards. The only thing she got wrong is that they see Russia from their front yards. <laughs> because the way the island, <laughs> island is constructed is that the, the housing all goes up the, the steep, uh, steep ridge of the, the island. It's basically a sort of hill of scrag and scree and stones, um, about as high as the Empire State Building or something, I think. And, um, and, and so they, they do. They get up every morning, they look across, and if the fog's clear and that, they can see the watchtowers on top of this Russian military base. Wow. So what would make you um, do that kind of job? Uh, <laughs> it was, I don't know how, what does make any of us do anything, apart from the fact if you fall in love with the wrong person or something or get the wrong job or get into debt. I, um, I left school quite early. I, I left at 17 and I got a job on a, a, a freighter, an iron ore carrier that took me from Wales, Port Talbot in Wales. And we went around for about three or four months and I ended up in Australia, went to West Africa went to Japan, a couple of other places. And I sort of backpacked around Australia for two or three years, earning money to travel, essentially. 
And then one Christmas, I was up at the northern Australian town of Darwin. And there were warnings as we were getting sort of drunker and drunker on a Christmas Eve that the cyclone was coming. And the cyclone came, it was called Cyclone Tracy, and it ripped that town to shreds. Uh, I spent the night with, 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 with friends sort of pulling drunks to bring them to safety, keeping the house wow. up as much as possible, um, getting the right sort of stuff so that you could go out safely to help people out, getting ripped apart with shredded stuff that was flying through the air. And when I woke up in the morning, I remember during the night, I said, well, I'll do this, I'll do the night, and I'm going to blow all that money that I've saved on a night in a five-star hotel, which was something like a travel lodge, you know, because when you're, when you're that young, the travel lodge is a five-star hotel. And yeah. I, I, woke up, <laughs> I woke up in the morning, there. and um, the town was flattened. It, was, it had those sort of houses that you have sort of concrete posts and the car goes underneath, and then the house is on top of that. All of those houses were down, um, including ours, apart from one room. And, uh, and I stayed there, um, you know, helping people get out and helping, you know, putting roofs on things and that sort of thing. The, the, the five-star hotel travel lodge was twisted like a lamppost. Um, and then the journalists arrived. And they interviewed me and they interviewed everybody else. And then the papers arrived and their, their byline pictures were in it. And I thought, oh, this is quite a good job, isn't it? You know, you go into an interesting place, you talk to an interesting people, uh, you get a little bit famous, and then somebody pays for it all. So it was in that time I thought, well, when I get back to London, I think that's what I'm going to do for a living. And, of course, there are bumps and hiccups on the way, but that was what put, the, put that sort of drive into me to do that. Were you writing at the time? Did you, have, did you just say, I'm going to start writing and being a reporter, or did you, like from a kid, start writing and... Well, I think, I think you know, I hope I can share this with some of you. I think I was writing, but it was probably absolute rubbish. And I've got it up at, upstairs in the, in the loft, but I don't even look at it. Um, but I, was, I wanted to write. Uh, I think I always wanted to write. Um, but, of course, at that age, you know, when you're 18 or something, you don't quite know what writing is and how it comes about. Um, and it was the... Once I got into the journalism and you get those editors barking at you and saying it's a rubbish story or turn that around and, um, you, you know, you've got to rewrite that and get to the heart of the story in the first paragraph, and that sort of thing. Uh, when you get that knocked into you and you pick yourself up the floor and then write it properly so that it can get through to people. I mean, the whole thing about writing is to have somebody you know, to touch the heart of somebody or to explain something to somebody. There's no point in writing something that's absolutely brilliant if nobody reads it. Yeah, like my books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah mine too. Or yeah. <laughs> well, nobody publishes it, should I say. <laughs> but, that too. Joe, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm going to stop right there and walk away clean. <laughs> I have to say, um, these books, just like your nonfiction books, the first thing I noticed is you're really – focused on, um, how do you say, like, um, I don't know, uh, military war, power struggles, you know, this sort of um, maybe espionage between countries like Russia and, and, and Asian. And, and I, I just, so where, where do you think that comes from for you? Is this, I think that's tied into your, your journalism. So 
Is this like a passion you have? Uh, I would say it's a it's a bit it's become a bit of a passion, but it started that sort of osmosis that you get when what you dream to to do or what you think you can do, like the W. B. Yeats or James Joyce or something, and what it turns out you become. So I was being a journalist uh, to earn a crust, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I still love it. Uh, but you always think you want to do a book. Um, so when around the mid 90s, I was the BBC Beijing bureau chief in China. It's very interesting time. I just managed to get a television bureau open there, and half of China was building skyscrapers and high-speed rails and all that. Huawei was just beginning. All that stuff we think about now. The other half, all the same stuff. You know, they were arresting people and putting people in prison and 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 all that sort of uh, dreadful stuff that still goes on there. And at that stage of the career, you know, every journalist thinks they should, you know, correspondent thinks they should get a book under their belt. So I wrote an outline for a book about Wither China Now. And when I was next in London, my agent took me to see a great publisher, a man called William Armstrong, who ran a sort of military publishing company, which is now run by Macmillan's. And he looked at this outline, which was basically one sheet on the desk. And I saw him look at it, and you can see the way his face was changing. He pushed it to one side, but there was a breeze went through the room and it sort of took it up and put it in and it flopped into the rubbish bin. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, he doesn't like it, so w why have I been brought into this meeting? And he said, very, he said, Humphrey, look, I can publish this book for you and I'd be delighted to, and it could sell one, maybe 2,000 copies, and it would be very worthy. And I thought, there's a but coming. And he said, but tell me this, and he leant forward with his hands steep and he said, could you write me a book about America going to war with China? I think that will sell. And the one thing that a journalist likes is an editor that knows what he wants. So, of course, I said yes. And <laughs> that became a book. I, yes. I, because I wanted it quickly, I co-authored it with an, uh, uh, another correspondent called Simon Holberton from the Financial Times. And that book was called Dragon Strike, and it did incredibly well. And it's still selling well today, actually, um, 25 years on. Uh, so it was really whatever I was dreaming of when I was 18 of being a great sort of literary writer or something and then you become a journalist and then I was going to do a, a worthy footnoted tome about China. And the guy says, no, no, just do a war between America and China. I said, right, okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> when in doubt, kill everybody. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well. Well. But th there's one, one difference that, from journalism and particularly fiction writing uh, that, that I've learned, or it's only just dawned on me, shows how dumb I am, is that um, with journalism, you've got to tell the heart of the story at the top. You know, what's it about? And then spell it out paragraph by paragraph. In a mystery or an espionage thriller or something, you have to check those reveals very carefully because the whole point is that twist at the end of the chapter or the cliff edge or something like that. Um, in a news story, you don't do twists. You, do, you know, a shot rang across the room and killed, killed the disc jockey. <laughs> Whereas you have to wait. You know, and it did it because of, it's the what, where, why, and when. Whereas in a mystery or, you know, any sort of fiction, fiction you've got to pace the what, why, when, and where. So when you, you live a nonfiction life at that point, you were a journalist yeah. and a reporter and going to real places. So how did you study the fiction world to 
change over from writing the you know the nonfiction world, nonfiction books basically to fiction. Who 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 were your mentors? Um, I would say the mentors at that because when I did the Dragon Strike series, which was three books, another British publisher commissioned me to do three more commercially fiction books because they thought Asia was going to be the place for thriller fiction at the time. And I was relying very much on Robert Ludlam, Tom Clancy, uh, John le Carre, uh, people like that. But then right as a kid, um, I, I don't know whether it's the way my mind works, is I was captured, captivated by a book called um, Exodus by Leon Uris. Oh, Leon Uris, yeah. yeah. And I was, must have been 11, 12, I, I, I don't know. But this was a book that I would read walking along the street and with a torch under the bedclothes at night. And all the time that I was completely taken into the creation of Israel and the post-Holocaust and all of those things, a little voice was saying in my mind, why am I not being taught this at school? Why am I having to read a novel to find out what happened here? And maybe I was being taught it, but it wasn't going in. But I went from... Uh, fr from Leon Uris's book, there was a great author, not much talked about now, called Robert Ruark, who wrote all about Africa and the Mau Mau terror in Kenya and, and that, those sort of independent struggles. And there was, um, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, there were James Michener did Alaska and Poland and the Drifters. And I went, I found that I was going for those fictional accounts of things to learn about the world rather than going into the non-fiction library to learn about the world. I would say that with your fiction, but you are, when you do a fiction, you're able to decide what your characters are going to, to be like and how they're, they're going to um, act, so to, so to speak, and who wins and who loses and all that. Whereas when you're doing non-fiction, it's kind of, it is what it is, and the people are who they are. <laughs> that, that's, that, that is true. It's, um, I did the, the latest nonfiction book I did was one called Asian Waters, uh, and it was uh, the subtitles, The Struggle Over the South China Sea and the Challenge to American Power. Um, and in that case, the characters actually turn out to be the countries. And what I found there, because I went back to, um, uh, you know, pre-colonial times to find out how the, the dots all connected and why, you know, how did India connect to Japan? And, and I never knew, for example, that it was Pakistan that brokered the first elements of Nixon's visit to China. Um, so there's all of that stuff that I sort of wrapped in there. There were some fascinating characters in there but what I found was that countries continue to act as countries do. Uh, and whoever's leading, a, you know, whether it's Obama or Trump, whether we've Boris Johnson or, um, uh, you know, Tony Blair, uh, Britain has its characteristics, just like a fictional character or, or a character. And the U.S. has it. India has it. China has it. And none of that is going to change uh, Ever So when you draw up your list of characters in a, in a fiction book, say, you, you know, you've got John, Mary, Stuart, whatever, they, they, are cert they will propel the, the narrative in a certain way. The serial killer will do this and the 
that the, the romance will do that. In the nonfiction, when I did uh, the, the, the nonfiction that I did for Asian Waters, was a bit like the Dragon Strike as well. I did is that China will always act in the way that China acts, and so will Dubai, and so will Britain, uh, and you can't change that. So the interlocking elements of global history is what we are seeing now. So we've had, say, 30 years since the Berlin Wall came down, or 35 years, or however long it is, and people were talking about this is the end of history, democracy is going to be the way that we all live and everything like that. A generation later, the new leaders have all forgotten about that, and Russia is doing what Russia always does, China is doing what China always does. Well, Humphrey, I'm glad you were talking about that, because a question I wanted to ask regarding your writing and all your books is you're a world traveler. The place is a character into itself and your characters seem to be in direct relationship and built or grown from the place that they are. Can you explain how you use character and the sort of the natural relationship of the place that they are to, to build those characters out? Am I, am I misreading? No, you? no, not at all. Um, and if I went off on a tangent there, I'm sorry, it's one of my passions. But, uh, no, exactly. <laughs> but if you take Ray Kazena, who is the character in Ice Islands and, and the other three books that comes from the island of Little Diomede in the Bering Straits, this is one of the most inaccessible and, and environmentally hostile places in the world. Uh, where they live by shooting polar bears, walrus, seals, they know they can judge the tides, they can judge the water, they can see the weather coming my, miles away and that sort of thing, and it's an environment they love. It doesn't have much, um, uh, you know, you don't have much time there for, for, for the luxury of, say, you know, elites that you have of um, uh, uh, self-doubt or um, thinking about yourself or philosophizing because you, you're battling with the weather all the time. So I've got a character like that. And over the four, four books that I've done, I've enjoyed growing his mind, as it were, or growing what the reader knows of his mind as he moves out of that environment to tackle bigger global problems and come face to face with American presidents and girlfriends and that sort of thing. And his girlfriend is somebody he met who's called Carrie Walker. It's a trauma surgeon. And they met whilst he was deployed to Afghanistan, and she was a trauma surgeon in conflict there. Uh, she comes from Brooklyn, but her father is um, her father is Estonian, and her mother is Russian. And they married when it was the Soviet Union. She and and because of the politics of that, because the Estonians threw the Russians out in the early 1990s, and there's antagonism still between them. And we've been reading about it uh, during the Ukraine. Um, uh, crisis and everything. So Carrie Walker is somebody that hasn't really got a home. Uh, and she's struggling with identity issues of that because her, her mother and father are from two opposing sides, really, uh, culturally and now politically. And she was born in the Soviet Union that no longer exists. And when she looks at Reiko Zena, uh, he has a home. It might be this remote island, but it has a home with a community of 80 people of which he's a tribal leader. So they both come from these different worlds that I've, both of the, all of those worlds, I've sort of, uh, you know, absorbed as, as a foreign correspondent because I've done Russia, I've done Estonia, I've done the, the tension between the two, and I've done, as I explained, uh, the little Diomede Island. Humphrey, 
a question. Uh, the in your job as a reporter, your job is to tell people about things. You know how you said that you uh, you have to get into the first paragraph. One of the thing, one of the things that uh, me being a uh, really uh, by heart a nonfiction writer, but I wrote some fiction novels. The editor yelled at me because he said that uh, fiction readers don't uh, want to be told. They want uh, characters to tell the story. Did you have to go through that yourself? I think so. I think on the first uh, uh, commercial fiction that I did, uh, getting on for 20 years ago, I don't think I really knew what I was doing. And a very good editor I had said, look, Humphrey, be less of a journalist and be more of a, of a writer. Uh, use your imagination more. Uh, don't don't information dump. Uh, so you, the, I think uh, you, that there are there are elements that you can actually relay a lot of information in a conversation between two or three characters, and you also have them doing other things at the same time, so that the reader is sort of thinking, well, is this person really flirting with this person? Oh, that's interesting about the, um, uh, you know, the, the bullet that's going across the room or something, something like that. So it, all, it mixes into a scene. And if you, if you read, I mean, some, I've just been reading a book by, a new book by Ken Follett called Never, which is a, which is a beautifully constructed global crisis uh, type of element there. His scenes are absolutely brilliantly constructed because you have a president who's worrying about her husband having an affair and a daughter who's smoking marijuana at school and she's having to wondering whether she's having to open the nuclear football and press the trigger and all that he encapsulates brilliantly in a couple of pages you know i can't help but think that um throughout your your real life experience of, of being a journalist and getting out and meeting people that a lot of the characters in your fiction books come from some of those people that you've met. Yes, the, the well, not a, yes and no. I mean, the the um, uh, I, I would say they're more an amalgamation of people. Um, I have can't think of any fictional character that I have, you know, created from one person uh, alone. And because it's fiction, you can make up bits of it. There was one actually in in a book I did called Third World War. Um, there was a an Indian general who became a very good friend, and I did sort of make him the prime minister, a man called General Ashok Mehta, who I'm hoping to see for a drink next week, actually. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but there was a, there was a, in Dragon Fire, which was the which was a war between India. Pakistan and um, uh, and China. It, there was a, a fascinating uh, time because I went to Islamabad, and there was a retired diplomat that I said, "Look, can you just tell me exactly how a coup would happen here if there was a coup? Because I need to put it in my book, and uh, also what the, the new president, who would be a military leader, would say at a United Nations." speech to make it acceptable to the international community. And we worked on this for a couple of days. I'd go around to his house, we'd put maps on the floor and go over it and hone the speech and everything. And then I came back to London to write it up. And then, <laughs> and then there was a coup. 
and Musharraf took over. <laughs> oh, boy. And I, uh, I called the guy, um, uh, uh, the, I went, I, actually, I won't name him. I called the, 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 the diplomat, and, and he said, oh, Humphrey, I can't talk at the moment. And then I, about a week later, I tried him again. I said, I just want to run this you know, thing by you for my book. And, and a, a, an assistant came back and said, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, he can't talk to you at the moment. He's just been made foreign secretary. And, um, oh. <laughs> and then there came one of the speeches, and almost, not word for word, but there were huge chunks in it that had come out of the, uh, the thing that we had mapped out. On, on the floor wow. of his, his, his dining room. <laughs> so <laughs> these, so are, these things, are, and, and, um, uh, and there was a guy there, I mean, whilst we're on this, if I'm not taking too much time, there was a guy there who, um, uh, uh, Hamid Ghul was his name, and he used to be head of the uh, Pakistan uh, Interagency, ISI it's called, uh, which is the sort of big intelligence umbrella that, that, that practically runs Pakistan. And I went around to him, and if you're an author as opposed to a journalist without a camera crew and notebook and everything, you can sort of hang out with these people. And I hang out with him and his family. And he told me, he said, look, we're going to green, we're going to green Pakistan, and we're going to take parts of, we're going to take a bit of India just to prove our point. And I went, I flew from um, uh, Lahore, it was, to Delhi. I, I went up to Lahore from Rawalpindi, where all these generals hang out. And I said to a journalist, and I said, look, I've just spoken to this guy, and he's just told me that they're going to take a part of India and green Pakistan. He said, oh, that, that guy's full of rubbish. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and so I, I sort of kept it in my back pocket because I was doing other stuff. And then there was a, a, a small war, and they went into a place, Pakistan went into a place called Kargil, and tried to take that territory off India. And the greening of Pakistan, as we all know, you know, has been and still is happening. So you're really a secret agent, right? <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't be telling you, would I? <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the plan. Something happens. I know. Yeah, that happens all the time, right? You know? Yeah. Wow. Hey, crazy. Crazy. I got a question for you. As you, as you were talking, you just you keep questions into my head thank you very much being a journalist that you are you're you're writing a series and you've talked and you I, you know places and locations are important to you are you starting at the place and location to write the book you start at the plot you start with the characters you're moving rake forward how how do you look at your writing process as you're making building out this world that you've created of rake and the uh, I, I look first at the issue and i know i shouldn't i should look at characters but i as a journalist i look at the issue that it is so the first one it was the you know what if russia took a took a bit of alaska ice islands um was i was thinking i, I want to get away from what everybody else is doing which is the middle east and, and europe and i i saw something there was um in 2011 there was a pre presidential executive order um, with the, in the Obama administration. And it, it said that um, it had four organized crime networks that it said was a threat to American democracy. Uh, and amongst them, there was a Russian one, there was a, um, uh, the, the, there was a Latin American one, you know, drug, drug one, there was a, a, a mafia one in Italy. Uh, and then there was the Yakuza in Japan. And I thought, oh, 
Because that's weird. I mean, you know, Japan's meant to be a friend. Is it really a threat to American democracy? So I, talk, I got in touch with a contact at the FBI, actually, um, and I said, look, can you put me in touch with somebody about this sort of Japanese threat to American democracy? And she hooked me up uh, with sort of codes and phones and everything to an FBI agent um, who had run, you know, uh, the, the, the Japan or the Far East or something and that. And I said, look, I did that crazy. I said, I'm a thriller writer. Uh, we come up with crazy ideas. Can I just put an idea to you and then, you know, you can take away 90% of it and we'll work with what's left. And I said, look, supposing, you know, organized crime got very close to the government and then supposing it didn't have America's best interests at heart. And he, he said, he said, Humphrey, let me just stop you there. He said, I've been trying to get this on the desks of American leaders for the past 20 years of my career and nobody's listening. And then we talked for about 90 minutes uh, he didn't give away any classified information. What he did is he pointed me to a number of uh, open source court cases that had happened in Europe um, and in a, a bit of Asia, but a lot of them on the West Coast, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and that sort of thing. And from that, I, I had a, a sort of bedrock of credibility of the issue that I was writing about, which was organized crime in Japan and what happens if Japan is no longer an American ally or isn't a threat to that alliance there, which is very big. And then I put Reiko Zena in the middle of it, and he's, he's a sort of kick-ass. Nelson DeMille said, you, he said, Reiko Zena's a guy that you're glad he's on your side. So he, he, he sort of goes in, and, um, uh, and, and, and it's all about trying to turn, get into the family that's doing this, what are they doing, and then stopping them at the end. Um, and then, then I put together the, the different pieces. And, of course, you turn it around and the editors look at it and things go. So, but it begins in the Orland Islands in the Baltic Sea, which, which are some islands that, are, that were disputed between Finland and Sweden and almost started a war after the First World War. But now they, because they've got a solution to it, uh, they now run peace conferences. So it sort of begins there, and then it ends in northern Japan. I mean, one of the things that... Um, very few people knew, including myself, or I knew it and wasn't really aware of it, is that Russia and Japan uh, are still technically at war. They don't have a peace treaty. They just have a ceasefire. Um, and there are disputed islands up there, which were coincidentally, they were the uh, islands in um, No Time to Die that they used in the James Bond movie. <laughs> Without, without explaining exactly what it was about, and coincidentally with my ice islands. So when you put these books together, being so close to reality in some sense, um, do you have something you want people to get out of the book? Is there, like, even if it was happens organically because you're so involved in a lot of the details, like, do, is there someone picks up the book, takes it home, and reads it? Um, is there something you want them to take away besides the roller coaster thriller? Yeah, I think ride? I, I think that's something I guess I got from Tom Clancy, um, not not his skill or talent, but uh, but when you read Red October, you could sort of go away and you go to the bar or something, and you could sort of talk to somebody about how a submarine worked. 
um, you would know what a sonar bit was or, or whatever it was. You might not know, but you'd have a sense that you knew how this world worked. Uh, with mine, um, it's a little bit like my nonfiction. I can't quite shake that off. But in Ice Islands, I just, just w want people to you know, go away realizing that you know, Asia or, or Japan is not as simple as we think it is, um, that there are still people there that, that think they should have won the war, uh, you know, as there are, you know, all over the place. Uh, we, we, you know, there's a lot of people in Britain still think we should be an empire. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's nothing <laughs> yeah, new about not. that. <laughs> and, and, and just so that they can, you know, maybe put it down and then go and have a word. Oh, I've just read this book, you know, fascinating book about Japan, really exciting. But did you know this? Did you know how the kimono worked? Or did you know what the Yasukuni Shrine is about, um, which is this place that, politicians visit in Tokyo, which causes all sorts of uproar because there are war criminals um, are there um, in the shrine, uh, which Japanese people come and pay tribute to. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, if there was a Nazi shrine still in Berlin that Germans went and paid tribute to. Uh, so there are all these little nuggets to, I guess, you know, I go back, there's a Clancy thing and there's the Leon Neuris Exodus thing. Uh, you, you know, could I do something like explain a situation to people in a commercial sense so that it's a page turner as opposed to a footnoted tome? So with each book, what do you think um, it does for you? Like, how do you feel you've changed after you've done a book? And, and do you feel there's more change within yourself after a fictional book than a nonfiction? Oh, oh, that is a... Um, I would say yes. A fictional book is a piece of journalism, essentially, although it's not, but it's much bigger than that. I mean, when I first did my nonfiction book, I thought, well, you know, you've got 100,000 words, and 1,000 words, that's 100 different articles that you do or pieces you do. It's not like that at all. Um, but that is something that I've done, you know, checking facts and, and putting it in an order that's readable. I think in a fiction book, you... You, you go into yourself and your imagination a lot, uh, and you have to put your own self to imagine how other people would feel, and you cannot bury those emotions. So as much as over here in Britain we're meant to have a stiff upper lip, I have to examine in myself about broken love, about fear, uh, about cowardice, about risk, um, and about what's at stake and about your home community and your soil um, and all of those issues which I would um, uh, just glance over in a non-fiction book. Here I, I have to think very deeply about my own community and, and my own relationships with people and what's your breaking point and am I being manipulative and all these elements that come into a um, uh, you know a fictional book if 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 you want to and I'm still learning I mean I think writing fiction is a bit like golf you're never going to get it right are you Well in America I think a lot of uh, people think journalists do write fiction so here too actually and, and, and there's an element of truth in that too it's just the way you deliver it isn't it Yeah yes yeah, that whole thing about my trade and the objectivity of it um, and the the mixing of opinion. Um, with news or the opinion with um, impartial uh, reporting. I mean, that has become a terribly... 
uh, it is a an abyss that I really don't want to go down. Kind of good to be in a place where a lot of your work is already done. I, you know. Yeah, I, I, I th- yes, I don't. Well, it would, you know, you can say I'm sure people said when I was just starting out, I don't envy what it was like now. But, but the BBC that I used to work for is is in a, in a mire of controversy at the moment about what exactly is impartiality. Um, there is this issue that um, we had Brexit over here. Um, you know, you had uh, the, the, the whole Trump thing over there. So, you know, we've all, we're, all going through, we're all going through the same thing. But, but, but somebody was saying, look, if you've got, um, you've got 10 economists that you ring up and they say that uh, Brexit is going to be a disaster, and then you're scrabbling around for a day to find one that says it's going to be good, do you actually put that one against one of the... Uh, one of the economists that think it's going to be a disaster um, because is that representative? So this whole issue of impartiality is being debated as we speak. Yeah, and again, a lot of opinion and emotion gets involved, right? You know, uh, um, you have cancelling over there. Everybody gets cancelled over here. Yeah, I'm cancelled every week. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's a better world for that too. <laughs> well, help, help me. Do you cancel yourself as you're writing? Do you think about oh, how this might be read uh, by other people? No. I, well, I guess I might. Some st- I think I, I try to write for the market, so I think, is that going to work? But I don't think that's cancelling. There's that other phrase, too. Is it called a, appropriation or something, where you're not meant to write a character that you haven't experienced? There was a, um, a, a book that was written it was two or three years back now about, I think it was a Mexican um, crossing the Rio Grande or something, and the person that bestseller, the person that wrote it, wasn't Mexican and never crossed the Rio Grande, and she was uh, all her book tour was cancelled. Do you do you worry about that when you get into a fiction book? Then, like when you how you have your characters speak or uh, act toward one another? I I, uh, I I do a bit, but not a great deal. But in the case of the Man on Ice book. Um, I did the reporting from there as well. And in the report, uh, I had the word Eskimo. And oh, the no. BBC, you know, gods at the top said, oh, you can't use that. It's a derogatory word. I said, yeah, but they call themselves Eskimo. Uh, so what do I use? Oh, native, indigenous, uh, something. I said, but they're actually on tape, which I had to play them, are calling themselves Eskimos. Uh, so what are, you, what are you going to do? And it went right up to the highest level there. Um, and I think we, we allowed it in at the end. Um, so I think, you know, there is a, a what I found as a reporter often is that you can go to Bangladesh or Africa or something. And what they have on their books back in a BBC pronunciation unit or value unit or strategy unit or whatever you want to call it has got nothing whatsoever to do with the people that are on the ground. And there was one piece that I did from northern Uganda, a place called Karamoja, which is one of the poorest places I've been to, where the, uh, the, the, the governor was say, saying, look, we, we really, we, we're not going to do gender equality and we're not going to do this, uh, this um, gay thing or whatever. And I said, why not? He said, well, you know, if, if we do it, we're not going to get our aid, but it's not what people want. This is aid money from the West. I said, what do people want? He said, well, our people are cattle herders, so they need a stockade so that thieves don't come and take their cattle. And, and we don't want to do 
all of the stuff that is resonating in your country because it doesn't resonate with us. And I got a, had a hell of a job getting that on air. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it went right. I said, you know, everybody was ringing out complaining <laughs> because it drove a coach and horses through the, you know, all our international aid programs. It seems like it's changing daily yeah. sometimes. Yeah, social media speeds it up, doesn't right. it? So, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you, do you, are you interactive with social media? Is this a big place? Do you like to interact with readers or fans or I, I, enemies? I, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of, I don't do it as much as I should. I, you, you guys tell me, I feel so guilty that I should be immediately um, reacting to something that happens. But if, you're, if you've got a, you know, a day job or you're busy, you can't do that. Um, so I feel that I should be, but I'm not. I will, I say to, 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 um, to people, I said, you know, email me or send me a direct message on social media and I'll reply to you. Um, but I'm not going to get involved in a sort of jamboree of, 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 of thousands of different comments and tweets and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's better to stay away from that anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. I do. I do 99% of the time yeah. now. I always try to, if someone likes the book or says a comment or on Twitter, usually, I always try to respond to them directly. I say yeah. a thank you, yeah. you know, have that kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. But I'm not yeah. going to have a political discussion or no. anything deep besides that. But that's that's only once or twice a year. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> How do you know? I'm so lonely. Well, one of the elements that has been a plus is that since I went to Little Diomede Island, I now follow on Facebook a couple of people that are sending back the most spectacular photographs from there. So, um, uh, you know, I feel that I'm still in touch with the place that I'm writing about very much. And I hope to go there um, uh, uh, next year again. I, I, I went off on that tangent about the, my sort of thing about how countries react. So I covered the Iraq war and the, the, um, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And I thought, how on earth could they have thought that they could import democracy to this place? And, right. and and that is a passion of mine, and I will comment on that. But all of the other stuff that uh, is going on here in Britain at the moment, uh, I don't want to touch. In fact, I'm not even going to name it in case, in case <laughs> I get touched by it. I mean, don't you have some causes that you're behind on exactly on those types of issues, like human rights and uh, children? I, I, yes, I have, uh, I have the, the democracy issue that I talked about just now, and also that there's a, um, an issue I got involved with completely by chance um, about 20 years ago uh, when I was in uh, Ghana um, doing another story. I think Ghana had just become a democracy or they'd had an election or something. And I bumped into, um, bumped into someone and said, you really have to come and look at this. And I looked at... Um, uh, and, and there were these children that had been rescued from working on cocoa plantations, they call themselves very grand, they're sort of scrubs of land. And they'd been harvesting cocoa um, for the, for, 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 to make our chocolate. And there's lots of sort of slavery and abuse stuff around, but there was a direct line without many degrees of separation between what those children were doing and, and Hershey and Nestle and... Um, uh, Mars and, 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 and people like that that were selling them in the shops. And I went back there because um, that wasn't the main purpose of the story. I didn't have the budget to do it. I, I went back with a, a proper crew a couple of times and we traveled through, it was mainly the Ivory Coast and, and they were, these were kids that were, you know, illiterate, 
nine, ten years old. They'd all heard of David Beckham, the football guy, and they were promised, um, you know, jobs or to play or be trained on football teams, put into a car, uh, bussed across the border, and then shackled up in a shack in the middle of one of these plantations and sent out, you know, 12 hours a day to work. And we broke that story, and <clears throat> I went up to... And we broke it in such a way that it sort of went viral. And the uh, uh, congressman called Elliot Engel and Tom Harkin in the Senate uh, p put out a, a protocol that they forced the chocolate companies to sign that they'd get rid of this slavery within three, four, or five years or something. And I went back that three, four, or five years later, and it was exactly the same. They hadn't done a thing. And these are these multi-billion dollar chocolate companies. And I went to see Elliot Engel uh, in the Rayburn building in his office in, in Washington. I showed him the photographs of what we had come with, and he was absolutely furious. And he said, you can fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times, and you're dead. But what, was, what is fascinating is it still hasn't changed because Nestle and Mars and Hershey fought the measures against them in the courts. And there was a high court, uh, a Supreme Court ruling last June um, that actually said that they were not responsible for slavery in their supply chain. Uh, so that's a 20-year, and others have taken it up. There's a film called The Dark Side of Chocolate that's doing the rounds at the moment and winning lots of awards uh, by a, a colleague of mine. Um, but this is, uh, you know, we were very active on that, and I've been back there three, four, five times, done two or three documentaries on it, plus a number of news stories. I've been to see Nestle, uh, and they said they'll change their ways. Um, but actually... On the ground, nothing has really changed. It's very, very depressing. There's a book in there. Yeah, well, I mean, people, well, nobody would read it. I mean, they have done books. In fact, I did a book uh, about, uh, on sort of the whole democracy issue, and a sort of post-Iraq war book, or, and I had the, the, the chocolate issues in there. But, you know, these, these can, and I did... Um, uh, I did a number of supply chain things after that. In fact, I became the BBC's uh, human rights supply chain correspondent. <laughs> we did cotton in India, bricks in India, um, sugar in Latin America, and all the rest of it. And you do it, but the, the companies that are involved in this and the corruption of the governments make it very difficult to change things. And, of course, we keep buying it. So, you know, the, the market is always there. It's got to be pretty depressing to to to, to fight something. Maybe you should write your your action star in uh, in in this sort of a chocolate war. Yeah, I, you know, you know, Al, that's that is. Uh, I was thinking how to get Ray Kazena from his Arctic island down into the jungles of Africa to do something like that, and. Um, yeah. And would it have traction? I, well, what do you think? I mean, it's in. I, well, I, I do. Think it would. I think that. Yeah. I think that's the way to bring issues in. Actually, personally, I think it's it works better than nonfiction. Everyone's so, you know, that's why we have p people like Alex Jones and stuff that had huge followings because it's the dramatics, it's the uh, it's the fiction mm. of it that sells. Well, um, I I see a character who's a cold weather character. And suddenly he's juxtaposed and stuck in a hot weather area. Mm. And there's a 
what what dichotomy, what what conflicts go on, you know, just for him as a character. But you can write your story around that. But then, then for yeah, you, put Michael Hawley in there. You know, he come from the uh, yeah, he's everywhere. Yeah, he's come from the military. He's uh, yeah. you know, you, 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 now now you've got me thinking. I'll have to. Uh, I'll, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> if it happens, I'll have to blame you. I'll, I'll, I'll put Stand it up in line, the huh? acknowledgments yeah. as, a, as a blame game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stand right. in line in the blame game for me. <laughs> yeah, or the thank you game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now, let's get out your website, contact information, and how people can find you or find uh, the book and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> to find me, it's, it's, it's quite simple. You can just Google Humphrey Hawksley, www.humphreyhawksley.com, uh, and the website comes up. And in that website, and they've all got separate things. So Ray Kazena, who is the hero, is www.rakeozena.com. And the books have got uh, their own thing. So Ice Islands, the latest, is, is Ice Islands. I think it's iceislands.co.uk uh, because Com had been taken. Or, um, and then the first one, Man on Ice, is uh, manonice.com. Um, and the, the, that's a bit of, if you get into the website, it's all clearly um, filled out there. And, 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 and there's also a, a page of the book show I do. Um, not as sophisticated as yours, but we do two book shows a week where we bring in authors um, and just talk about their whole body of work, their lives, uh, and try to sell as many books for them as possible. That's called Goldster. I think it's goldster.co.uk. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Of course, we'll put all that up on our website as well so people can find you and find it and that. And uh, iceisland.com must have been taken by Sarah Palin. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, geez, there you go again. You're going down. I had to do it. I had to do it. I did. Anyway. Uh, yeah, well, pro pro probably has. So that's why it ended up as co.uk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, it's certainly been a pleasure. You're a very interesting man, and uh, we're glad you came on. Well, so I, I guest, mean, it's it's yeah. it, it, it's great. I'm so glad it's not visual because I can um, sort of kick back and and everything. But no, it's been really fascinating. I've learned a lot, not least to put Rakers Zena down in the tropics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, our guest Humphrey Hawksley. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.